0: And good afternoon. It's 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. This is Finding a Voice, spoken word programming here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And coming up today in the first hour from the October 23rd lecture in the Page Lectures Annual Series... You'll hear this year's lecturer, Don McKay, f- uh, following an introduction to him by Marine Scott Harris. The lecture will run quite a ways, really, into the second hour today. In the second hour, following the conclusion of that lecture, you'll hear an October 18th book launch and reading event held at Novel Idea Bookstore with readings by Heather Cadsby and Sandra Davies, both launching their collections of poetry that evening Usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry spoken word or music on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So let's just, it's a tight show today. We're going to jump right in. Uh, coming up and running again, several minutes into the second hour today, you'll hear this year's lecture in the annual The Page Lectures series. And this year featuring Don Mackay. Uh, Up first, in it, following a welcome by the Queen's English Department, you'll hear an introduction to the event uh, by the series creator, Phil Hall, uh, with his introduction then to uh, Marine Scott Harris, who will introduce Don. Tell you what, here we go. Welcome to the 7th
1: Annual Page Lecture in honor of Joanne Page. Shelley King, the the head of this department, has asked me to say a couple of words about the series, and I will gladly do so before turning things over to Phil Hall. This event was inaugurated in 2012, when Queen's writer-in-residence Phil Hall came to Martin Strassnicki, then head of the department with a striking idea. What if, he proposed, the department offered an annual talk in which a distinguished Canadian writer would be invited to give a lecture on a subject of that most basic unit of composition and study, the page? Thus began our first named annual lecture in creative writing, with the Page Lectures joining the other two annual named lectures, the Wally Lecture and the Dolman Lecture Series. Phil took the name of the series to honor Kingston columnist, artist, and poet Joanne Page, a finalist for the Trillium Book Award in 2009. And in 2012, Phil delivered the inaugural Page Lecture introduced by Joanne Page herself. Four years ago, we were graced with Joanne's presence at Stan, at Stan Draglin's eloquent lecture on her poetry, and other speakers in the series include Aaron Moray, Elizabeth Hay, John Steffler, and Daphne Marlatt. We were saddened by Joanne's passing in 2015, and Carolyn Smart, Phil Hall and Shelley King discussed what could be done to demonstrate the respect and affection Joanne commanded in the Kingston writing community. Joanne's husband Steve, too, hoped to find a way to ensure that her life and work continued to contribute to the intellectual life at Kingston of Kingston and Queens. We were agreed that the Page Lectures could be an appropriate memorial if we could find a way to create an endowed fund to support the cost of the series. And we did find a way together. With contributions from the Department writers' funds, generous gifts from Steve Page and their two sons, and from Joanne's sister Patricia Bowles, as well as donations from Joanne's friends and colleagues, this fund has now reached over 66,000 in gifts and pledges. Our goal is to raise $75,000 in the next four years and to continue to invite the best Canadian writers to address our community. We encourage ongoing donations, in part so that we can meet the inevitable effects of inflation and in part to enable the director to look for speakers wherever the best writers are to be found. I'll now turn to Phil Hall for
2: today's. is Tracy Ware, folks, Uh, (laughs) representing the English department. So uh, thanks, Tracy. Um, I don't have too much to say except to welcome you, as Tracy did, to the seventh annual uh, page lecture. It's a very human thing we do today. So good on us. Um, Some things to announce. Um first met Don when I was a young pup after a reading at the uh, Rainey's house in London. Uh, wasn't there at the party but towards the end stuck his head in the door and said hi and off he went. It was a rare sighting. <laughs> um, We have a lot of distinguished guests here today, uh, a lot of uh, Page Lecture alumnus. Uh, John Steffers here, Dan Draglin's here. Um, we have Kitty Lewis here from Brick Books. In fact, it's a bit of a Brick Books Love Fest here today. <laughs> Many alumnus of that. Uh, My daughter, Brett, is here from Costa Rica. Far-flung bunch of folks we are. Um, I want to thank Wanda Pramsma for all of her continued work on our uh, lecture series. Thanks, Wanda. Um, I want to announce that um, we now have a selection committee, pretty snappy I know, <laughs> uh, which consists of Helen Humphreys who's here, Carolyn Smart who's here, and myself. Um, and uh, I'm happy to announce that our lecturer next year will be Marilyn Dumont mm-hmm. from Alberta Metis Canadian poet of high reckoning and uh, she's agreed to come and talk to us so we're very lucky Um, Dawn's talk today is called Play and Work in the Works of Joanne Page Uh, it's very good to have Steve Page here today with us And it's very nice that one of the uh, results of this series has been that Joanne's own work has come to uh, get more attention. Um, It's very nice. Um, Maureen Scott Harris here at the table, as you know, perhaps is our uh, official publisher for the series. Can we say that? Sure, go ahead. (laughs) So each year, the following year, she's producing these amazing chapbooks of the talks, and she has them for sale there. Uh, Daphne Marlott's talk last year is uh, hot off the press here on the threshold of the page, so you can take a look at that. And uh, Thanks to Beth Follett and Peddler Press, Uh, we have some donated copies of Joanne's wonderful Watermarks book with Peddler Press, so that um, I'm told that the way it works is if you buy one of Daphne's uh, chapbooks from last year, you get a free copy of Watermarks if you don't have it already. One of the features of this talk of Daphne's is that it's introduced uh, by Stan Dragland, who introduced her last year, and his introduction is here as well. So we're just inventing traditions as we go, right? So um, in that pattern, I've asked Green Scott Harris to formally introduce our speaker today, someone we're all very proud to have here and to know uh, Don McKay, one of the great ones. So Maureen, if you'd like to come and tell us more about that, thanks very much.
3: Hello everyone, thanks for coming. Phil, I'm not sure you said I was to formally introduce him when oh, he spoke I'm so to It's
2: <laughs> 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 informal.
3: <please>. <laughs> so, thank you for this um, somewhat daunting privilege of introducing my friend and teacher, Don Mackay. Because, after all, in some sense, Don doesn't need an introduction. In fact, that thought, no introduction needed struck me with a wave of relief on Sunday morning. (laughs) I was deeply immersed in making an inventory of the page chapbooks I bring today. That was my final attempt to avoid (laughs) a blank page. (laughs) That pool of wonderful risk. Those are Don McKay's words, not mine. But there I was at the edge of that pool and I found myself thinking what is the difference between introduction and inventory? So to get to the root of that matter, another path away from the edge of that pool, <laughs> I turn to my dictionaries. I won't bore you with recitations of those words' definitions, but their heritage might be of some interest. Introduction comes from the Latin introductura, or care, depending on your school of Latin pronunciation, which means to bring in. If you go back further in time, it's Indo-European root is D-E-U-K. Now, so far as I know, no one knows how to pronounce Indo-European, but I assume it's duke, and its meaning is to lead. Among the important derivatives from that root are Tug, wanton, abduct, reduce, and subdue. Now, there's a kind of discomfiting ambience gathering <laughs> as I read those words. And the figure of a duke on horseback, splendidly braided and brandishing his sword, swings into mind. But he doesn't much look like Mackay. Inventory, on the other hand is derived from the Latin invenire or naira, meaning to find or to come upon. And within it lurks that lovely word invent. And Lord knows, Mackay is a master of invention. This word's Indo-European root is the unpronounceable GWA, with G here, W kind of floating up there, and A here, if you can read backwards. I'm sorry, I should have done it the other direction. <laughs> And it means to go, or to come. (laughs) Is this a version of having it both ways? (laughs) Among its cousins are welcome, adventure, convene, event, souvenir, and acrobat, words much better suited to today, and to our speaker. So I'm going to offer you some of my findings in the form of inventories glimpses into Don's practice that incl- from, my, from my angle of vision that includes poetry, essays, nature, books, ideas, bird watching, antics, and deep attention. I'll begin with inventories of fact, but I make no claim to completeness. The places Don Mackay has lived, Owen Sound, where he was born, Cornwall, where he grew up, Sherbrooke, Quebec, London, Ontario, Swansea, Wales, where he went in pursuit of what we call higher education. London, Ontario again, and Fredericton, where he taught. Then a home in Victoria, and now in St. John's, Newfoundland. So he's been across the country a few times. I could inventory his books. 12 collections of poetry, including, I'm not gonna read you all the titles, but including Nightfield, which was where I first encountered his work and had and was illuminated because it turned out you could still write nature poetry, which I didn't know until that time. Apparatus, Another Gravity, Camber, Strike Slip, Paradoxities, and that magnificent heavy volume that I chose not to carry <coughs> to show you, Angular Unconformity, the collected poems 1970 to 2014. It's heavy to carry, it's not heavy to read, it's a delight to read. He's also published four collections of essays. The one that I have read most often is called Visa B, Field Notes on Poetry and Wilderness. Dawn's awards, two Poetry Governor General's awards for Nightfield and Another Gravity, with a further two nominations for that award. Another Gravity and Camber were both shortlisted for the Griffin. Strike Slick won the Griffin and the Dorothy Livesey Poetry Prize. Paradoxides? Paradoxides or Paradoxides? I'm not sure. You can go either way with that. Okay, good. <laughs> it won the Canadian Authors Association Poetry Award. And in 2008, Don was made a member of the Order of Canada. An impossible to compile inventory would list those poets, me among them and others in this room, who have had the privilege of working with Don in his capacities as mentor, editor, and creative writing teacher, not only at universities, but at the Banff Center, Saskatchewan's Sage Hill Writing Experience, and through residencies across the country. Now, I'll interrupt the inventory um, pattern to note that I spent this last week immersed in the pleasures of rereading Don's work I was after an elegant figure to characterize him but that well-defined single figure has evaded me. Every time I seized a possibility, the gawking bird watcher, field glasses round his neck maybe, I'd find another on the next page, the student of deep time, the apprentice to a birch tree. In his essay, Apparatus, Mackay writes, Poetry comes about because language is not able to represent raw experience, yet it must. Think about that for a minute. He often explores the material world's resistance to being fully captured by language. It always, he says, exceeds our attempts at nomination, as he does mine. Mackay's poems and essays are about us and our complicated relationship with the larger living world we inhabit, the need to learn where and how we fit within that world, what it means to be human, how to trim our sense of ourselves to an appropriate scale. He offers us moments of encounter and exchange, dizzying openings into larger understanding and stunned celebration and grieving. Names and naming, making, birds, Rocks and stones, engines, wonder, paradox are abundant in his thinking and writing. I haven't mentioned his apt and antic acrobatics, clownish leaps and tumbles, the wonderful jokes that animate the poems. That wit is a corrective to the high seriousness <coughs> we take ourselves with. To cap our romanticism, our enthrallment with the world as an occasion for attending to our own sensations, emotions, and reactions. Let's try to see the thing itself, he says. We might approach tree, bird, rock with courtesy, introduce ourselves to them, listen to what or how they might speak back. Don's articulation of poetic attention, which he describes as a sort of readiness, a longing which is without the desire to possess, has been invaluable to me in my own practice. Now, next is not exactly an inventory because we'd be here for months, but a sampling of the surprising and utterly apt images that spill out of his poems. For example, Feathers, are called next to nothings. Migrating monarch butterflies become freckles leaving the landscape. In Via Eastbound, the train is, quote, toiling, forgive me, Don. I wanted to say tolling often, toiling through the mountains like the 7,000 dwarves, earning every upward inch. <laughs> In Hiking With My Shadow, he addresses his, quote, Patient companion, little ink lake. When I pause, you heal and wait like a suitcase while I squander my attention on a wren. But let's come back to longing. It echoes through Mackay's work as word, as feeling, as experience. Here's the opening of his remarkable poem, Twin Flower. What do you call the muscle we long with? Spirit? I don't think so. Spirit is a far cry. This is a casting outwards which unwinds inside the chest. A hole which complements the heart. That hole that complements the heart shifts into another guise in a later poem, The Canoe People, which is based on a Haida story. The canoe people are perpetually traveling spirits, according to the Haida, who are always at sea. Mackay's poem opens with an epigraph from Robert Greenhurst's translation of Gondal's Those Who Stay a Long Way Out at Sea, Out to Sea. In that epigraph, a wren, we've met a wren already, I think, sings to one side of those traveling spirits. It's song, Gondal writes, quote, punctured, a blue hole through the heart of the one who has passed closest to it, they say. Mackay's poem imagines the incident and the sailing and it ends with, the one I almost recognize, already victim of the wren's bright hammered music, bravely wearing in his heart that delicate blue hole through which I think he listens. It's high time we listened to Don turn his deep attention towards the work and play of Joanne Page. So let me present him the man with the staff on a trail, singer of songs of a song, master raven, and angular unconformity. Don and
0: and you just heard in this year's uh, page lecture following an intro by the English department phil hall and then the introduction uh, to lecture don uh, Mackay, by marine scott harris uh, this is a short uh, but just necessary break for station id once uh, once i do this uh, the don's uh, lecture will Play well into the second hour today, and it will be uninterrupted. But you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We do stream live as well, www.cfrc.ca.
4: Wonderful to have this wonderful introduction by such a terrific poet and ecologist as uh, as Marine. Thank you all for coming. Um, Thanks to the Department of English, and thanks especially to Phil for this opportunity and for starting this uh, visionary uh, uh, series, uh, fostered in memory of Joanne Page. I hope this talk does some justice uh, to the extraordinary range and thrust of her poems, but I'm aware, I'm aware that no words will suffice to honor her life inside and outside the arts. She vastly enriched this community, you don't need to be told this, with her literary work, her artistic journalism, and her social activism. I count myself lucky to be amongst those who knew Joanne and to benefit from her friendship and, as we shall see, from her mentorship. I have actually neglected this earlier, a handout. This is this is the high point of my technological ability. <laughs> Phil, my beautiful assistant for the day, <laughs> is gonna pass them off to you and hand them out. She um, has two poems which I refer to a, a fair a fair bit. Um, um, I'd also fall on uh, uh, passing over the thanks. Um, I want to thank Stan Draglin, uh, not for the first time, whose earlier talk in this series of Joanne Page has been very helpful and inspiring. and He also helped me with his talk as an editor and a uh, facilitator of research. And now I would like Stan to be my second beautiful assistant and to raise his hand whenever he can't hear me uh, or make some other suitable gesture. Uh, uh, anyone else if you can't hear me please let me know I'm going to deal with the element of play in the book called Watermarks and the element of work in Persuasion for a Mathematician this order contravenes uh, both the chronology of publication, Watermarks was published in 2008 Persuasion in 2003 and it also contravenes our society's practice of having play always follow work as its reward Their traditional weekend uh, and summer holiday are prime examples. Work precedes play everywhere in our society except for childhood and this talk. (laughs) (laughs) What possessed me to pursue this road scarcely ever taken? In part, I was moved by a wish to emphasize the efficacy of poetry through its capacity for redress, to use Seamus Heaney's term. I knew that I would find no better vehicle to convey this point than the works of Joanne Page. The wish was partnered with another, perhaps its shadow, to buck the buck current trend which emphasizes poetry's supposed uselessness. Joanne Page's poetry, while frequently playful and even mischievous, does not aspire to what heaney calls the glissando of postmodernism. It occupies, believes in, and exploits gravity. So the subtitle of this talk could be Poetry Matters. Poetry matters, especially when it comes to Joanne Page's grief work, and this is the burden of the earlier book, Persuasion for a Mathematician. Burden in the sense of both its subject and its load. Her passionate engagement with mortality inspired me to write, compelled me, might be better, a prose poem as an afterpiece to this essay. In the uncle's tale, at the end, I attempt to follow Joanne's lead in approaching the difficult matter of a young girl's suicide. Especially difficult for me, since the young girl was my niece, Naomi. Like Joanne, I was moved by the sense that we want language to step up in these circumstances, to bear witness. We remember the request of the woman to Anna Akhmatova as they stood in line outside the Lubyanka prison. Can you describe this? Not fix... Not cure it, but to have language attempt a gesture of witness and redress. Poetry matters. All these seem material for the end of the talk rather than the beginning, hence my unorthodox order. So there will be a major shift in the mode of presentation close to the end, which I will signal with some deliberate gesture. <laughs> Something more than a whisper and less than an incendiary device. <laughs> it's hard to characterize the work of a poet as vigorous, as various, and as insightful as Joanne Page. Even to call her a poet is limiting, since she was enormously talented as a visual artist on the one hand and as a newspaper columnist on the other. Moreover, all these aspects of her work speak to and inform one another, so it's clear we are faced with the equivalent of an ecosystem rather than a set of individual species or categories. Perhaps a measure of her range of concern can be taken from the columns in the the Kingston Whig standard, which went under the general title, In Other Words, and were always signed, Joanne Page, feminist and writer. She inherited this column from Brahman Wallace, in the very real sense of carrying on a vision and a tradition, rather than simply taking over a job. A partial list of the issues she addressed will not speak to her deafness, her intellectual agility, her passionate commitment or wit, but it may provide a sense of her range. Here goes. The Iraq War, AIDS, fairy tale, the Montreal Massacre, voice appropriation, indigeneity, domestic abuse, gun control, equal rights, representation of women in public affairs, Barbie dolls, Mm -hmm. breast cancer, mob mentality in Queen's University orientations, (laughs) pornography, the absence of women in the pantheon of Canadian art, an issue she took up in a long poem in Watermarks. Gay pride. Menopause. A dream in which Margaret Lawrence and Emily Carr render critiques of censorship, environmental damage, abortion issues. Rahman Wallace's uh, legacy. Gossip as sheriff rather than malice. Gendered humor. International Women's Day. What mom did during March break. <laughs> Hint, Not a lot of writing or or painting. Hospice care. Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas. The NHL is a guy thing. Surely, she surmises, Don Cherry does not talk like that as he gets out of the bathtub. Plus, a satirical tour de force and manifesto entitled, Yes, I'm One of Those Gasp Feminists. On the one hand, these columns demonstrate her care, compassion, and engagement. On the other hand, she has a talent for skewering bluster that makes me wish she were still around to take her on Fox News and the Trump circus. <laughs> and surely the image of Don Cherry rising, a dreadful Aphrodite <coughs> from the back, <band. laughs> deserves fuller treatment. Please take no 22 minutes. Maybe fairness von sketch.
5: <laughs>
4: <laughs> play and work interact in Dwayne Page's writing in many ingenious combinations, so that the work does not descend to drudgery, and the play does not deviate into frivolity. Each has an ear out for the other, like the two speakers in her dialogue, Zero, which is not the same as nothing. At times, especially in Watermarks, her last book, play seems to come to the fore, exemplified most in the inventive persona, Miss Birdie T. At other times, as in the elegies and the death journey poems in Persuasion for a Mathematician, poetry is tasked with picking up the onerous burden of grief. Perhaps we tend to keep work and play separate because we realize that mixing them while exciting also risks disaster we might hypothesize that a happy combination of work and play results in way, as in the down, and also in colloquial expressions like way to go, and the evocative way to be, part of infielder chatter in softball games and the place where sports meets ontology. But when play and work connect awkwardly, like a badly arranged marriage, the result is plural. a <laughs> grotesque creature, in whom the elements cohabit, but not, but not, do not cohere or hybridize. Possibly you suspect that I'm just inventing Plork as a balance to weight, in the interest of symmetry. By no means. Let me invite any skeptics to visit my study where Plork is to be found by the bucket. Notebook after notebook, dating back decades. Failed poems in which work and play are together, but at odds. Terrible blind dates. Fried pork, pulled pork, pork, and beans. <laughs> Why keep this pork around, you ask, when it could be recycled into useful items like coffee filters or baby wipes?
5: <laughs> well,
4: because sometimes, now and then, once in a while, pork can metamorphose into whey. I might leave through an old notebook and suddenly see how a thing might work how its elements might play together. It's not that the words have changed, but that I have, sometimes, now and then, <laughs> once in <and> a while. <laughs> but the point here is that there is much way and no plork in the published poems of Joanne Page. I assume we'd find some if we inspected early drafts, Joanne being an accomplished writer, not a Rilkian angel, and from editing some of her early work, I know she never shied away from aesthetic or philosophical challenges. Her experimental poems often risk Plork by virtue of their audacity, but they never collapse into that junk glum state. I want to look at two experimental poems, a late one that is strongly inflected by play and fools around with the persona of the writer, and an early one that pushes the genre of elegy into new strategies for performing the labor of grief. So, first off, part one the play is the thing. To me, the play principle emerges at its most agile in the sequence from watermarks with the involved pseudo antiquarian title of, quote, from the hitherto unpublished journals of Miss Birdie T., inveterate traveler and champion of lost causes. The persona of Miss Birdie. Puts a special spin on the poems, which would otherwise be read as Joanne Page's own travel lyrics, each 15 identified by place. They might also be described as love poems to the earth. They start close to home, Bay of Quinty, and wind up in the high Arctic, with stopped in Hawaii and the iconic and polluted Walden Pond. At each step, acute observations are made, often with ecological edge, spoken in a voice that is both lyrical and contemplative. Miss Birdie has been intensely aware of the losability of these places, and often of the frailty of her own existence, even as she shifts between romantic, comic, and ironic modes of writing, often within the same poem. We need to remind ourselves that play also means flex, and elasticity. The invention of Miss Birdie allows Joanne to steal a page from the dramatist's playbook and to emphasize the point that a poem always develops its own voice and an implied speaker behind it, a voice and a speaker who are related but not identical to the poet. In his fine-page lecture, Stan Dragland cites a draft of a poem in 2002, which Joanne exhorts herself to, quote, get the poet out of the poem, the I, E-Y-E, not the I, capital I, and to abandon the first person. In an interview, also quoted by Stan, she mentions avoiding the first person in the Miss Burry poems, attributing anything personal to the intrepid traveler. Let's just pause a moment to recall how publicly and frequently personal identity had been declared in her columns. Joanne Page, feminist and writer, reiterated weakly and that these were, to put it mildly, far from empty labels. They boldly declared their principles Joanne engaged, elaborated, and fought for. They overt- overtly declared the poet's work. The gesture of the fictional idea, along with these quaint antique epithets, reflect the play side of Joanne's way. It's as though she were creating a deliberate counterbalance to the declarative feminist and writer paradigm in a manner at once playful and mysterious. With this persona, she brings the private writings of an unknown writer to the fore, a woman who, one suspects, is an early jet, still going by Miss as Miss Birdie, while also going anywhere she wants, To me, Miss Birdie is a combination of someone like Fanny Bullock Workman, the explorer of Tibet, and sometime later, Rachel Carson. And the fact that they reputedly come from private journals, hitherto unpublished, lends Miss Birdie a creative interiority and reclusiveness in opposition to the bold public stance taken by Joanne, the journalist. It's as though Joanne was reclaiming private creative space. The room of one's own that, as Virginia Woolf maintained, is of course crucial. By this gesture, she aligns herself with marginalized women artists like Harriet Clinch of Unsigned Under Glass, another long poem in Watermarks, those whose art is all the more potent for being private and anonymous. In the Miss Birdie persona, we have hints of the sly trickeries of Jorge Luis Borges and Fernand Persoa and more than a hint of the bold experiments of Joanne's editor and mentor, Aaron Murray.
5: This
4: is, of course, not the content of the feminist and writer identity that's being probed in these poems, but the fact that it gets to be so firmly fixed, and given the reductive tendency of public consciousness, so easily stereotyped. Any identity, however meritorious, can become an onerous constraint from which a person may seek the antidote of a resonant uncertainty. There's a character somewhere in the writings of André Gide who asked that he be paid the compliment of not being understood too easily. I think of it as roughly analogous to the passage from Newtonian physics to quantum mechanics. Both are subjects on which I am fabulously unfit to speak, but which I take to be the passage from certainty to probability as a norm accompanied by an, extent, an acceptance of undecidability. Joanne Page as Miss Birdie can access a range of resonant metaphorical possibility, just as you and I might contemplate some quantum phenomenon, such as spooky action at a distance, then go home and, so subtly destabilized, still wash the dishes and move along in our old Newtonian paradigms.
5: <laughs>
4: but there are traces of the work principle in these Miss Birdie poems. And these are eloquent. One instance of that shadow is found in a phrase insisting on a reckoning, a challenge to get off the pot and say what's what, implying that time grows short. In the Walden Pond poem, on your handouts, the addressee is an absent lover. If not now, when? If not you, who? My dear, my darling. So many miles, so much clear road. I have left my laugh in a jar set on the doorstep in case you come by. Let me just pause in appreciation of that extraordinary last line, which flows so beautifully in the outrush of feeling, but could easily stand alone. I have left my laugh in a jar set on the doorstep in case you come by. Well... A person could spend years of port production waiting for such a haiku-like poem, and it would be worth it. This moving love poem, set beside polluted Walden Pond, ends with a direct statement of that tempest of fugit theme. Think of your life as a brief summer. This is late August. Her. The other instance of this challenging imperative occurs in Davis Strait where it follows observations of flowing pans of ice. Quote, The world, in a guise I had imagined, but did not know to be a question. If this is not your Eden, what is? Miss Birdie could have left the question hanging and rhetorical, as Yeats might have done. Instead, she responds to the challenge at length, in three stanzas a wonderful, energetic writing, detailing with wit and candor the ideals of a feminist echo poet. Again, the after-echoes of the stark ontological crises of the previous book occurs in the suggestion that this is not only a wish, but a testament. Quote, This is not true. What would jury be like? <coughs> Belief would take the form of tolerant irony say lapsed Quaker lack temple priests and rules but one love when you can my Eden would run on marsh gas on wind be governed by those who mean to save the world with zeal except for Texans or come to think of it feminist collectives (laughs) civic spaces made of dance and song and public art of the impermanent kind that announces itself by departing the yearning of the idealist is whetted by the irony of the long-term activist in the field. Public art, in this Eden, is not comprised of luminaries on plinths or horses, but by gestures of impermanence. Possibly Joanne has in mind pieces like Peter von Tiesenhaus's wooden ship, designed to weather and disintegrate over the years, an artwork she would have seen at the Bath Center. Those nominees for Eden are related to her preference for last Quakers over temple priests and tolerant irony over what I take to be any dogmatic ideology, whether emanating from Texas or feminist collectives. Stan Dragland comments on that last exclusion like this. Mischief, but I think I know what she means. For feminist collectives, I could substitute English departments <laughs> or Canada Council block grand juries or blah, da da. And I'm guessing that each of us could name an entirely worthy organization with whose institutional side we have had the biscuit.
0: <laughs>
4: My own list of exclusions from Eden include formerly cherishable organs such as the RCMP, the Vance Center, Montreal Canadiens. <laughs> the CBC is on probation. <laughs> Other dramatic instances of the play factor. Are to be found in Miss Birdie's Kaloho Bay Hawaii poem, which is also on your handout, where her environmental concern again comes to the fore. The bay is polluted with the equivalent of flame retardants, and this is the chemical runoff from golf courses. Quote. But luck for the fish of the phantomless deep, full of flame retardants beneath their coat of scales. No danger of spontaneous combustion in clear (laughs) waters as the reef gets its daily chemical infusion, runoff from the fairways. Let's just note in passing how the music of that first line amplifies the irony. With those alliterating Fs and the strongly dactylic rhythm, it could be the start of a sea shanty. What? Luck for the fish of the felds. below <laughs> and beyond the scene, Miss Birdie conjures some female humpback whales who must dive deeper to reach the cool, unpolluted water. The whale must dive deeper to cool the great engine of her body, lest it cook her bones or blow her up as she breaches. the humpback singing her song for the slow burn of undersea coral and the ultimate island earth. Sorry, undershore coral and the ultimate island earth. As everywhere in a sequence, the iron of the opening easily cohabits with the expansive lyricism of the ending that flex in the play of Joanne's capacity. The female humpback singing for earth itself, that overheated and polluted island. Miss Brodie combines deep passion and critical acuity with that sly streak of trickster subversion. Consider the end note which she attaches to this poem. Also, on your handouts, it is believed that female humpback whales make a pattern sound only. The whale song scientists currently refer to has thus far only been detected in males. On page 75, the page where the poem appears, song is used metaphorically. Well, here we have some subtle mischief indeed. Miss Burney, the feminist, is not about to either disengender the humpback or make them male for the sake of factual correctness. <laughs> but Miss Birdie, the echo poet, is not about to leave us thinking she's ignorant of cetacean behavior or indulging in the romantic extravagance like Shelley's Bird Thou Never Wert, which celebrates the poem's feeling but does scant justice to a real hard working skylark. It occurred to me, reading this, that perhaps Miss Birdie has encountered some picky naturalist of an editor (laughs) who cribbles over such details. Who could say? I don't (laughs) know. Sometimes this sort of mischief is called foregrounding the difficulty, a tactic which draws attention to a problem rather than correcting it, and thereby stressing its importance. One possible subtext. When it comes to singing analogy elegy for our overheated planet, is it likely to be the males of any species doing the singing, or are they more likely to be found killing each other and squabbling over remaining resources? And there is yet another twist to the mischief. On page 75, "song" is used metaphorically. A sober, workperson-like reading would see this as a disclaimer to prevent whale researchers from getting their, kink, getting their knickers in a twist over singing females. Don't fret, boys, it's only a metaphor. Spoken in the matter of a politician avoiding a lawsuit by saying, when I called the Honorable Minister a mindless Levine, I was, of course, speaking metaphorically. But this comes from a poet who has already left her laugh in a jar on the doorstep in case you come by and will be some pissed off at any suggestion of reducing the power of poetic truth. When Miss Birdie says, metaphorically, we best expect power to be enhanced, not reduced, and pay special attention to its paradoxical reverb. Another subtitle for my talk, to go on with poetry matters, might be page
5: 75. <laughs>
4: <laughs> now, were we only considering watermarks, We might be inclined to see Joanne pay simply as a poet gifted with a generous comic spirit, open-hearted, inclusive, as implied in the wider idea of comedy, engaged, and nimble. But as we turn to persuasion for a mathematician, we encounter a poet who became, because life forced great losses upon her, a virtuoso of the elegy. I say this not from a vantage point of a critic who assesses Joanne's elegies from a purely objective point of view, I speak as a failed elegist myself. A poet has frequently been moved by loss and tried to bring language to bear and been left with a great deal of plork. (laughs) You are now fortunate enough to know what that
5: means.
4: (laughs) So I address persuasion for a mathematician as an avid reader, but also as an aging apprentice, still trying to coax language into meaningful engagement with loss. And to quote Neil Young, I'm getting old.
5: <laughs>
4: so, part two the work, work, work of art. If asked to list some of the chief issues addressed by feminism, a person might well cite those connected with childbirth, since these affect women most profoundly birth control, abortion. Maternity leave, child support, daycare, etc. And indeed, these are taken up regularly in Joanne Page's columns. But especially during the 1990s, much of her work was grief work, driven by the belief that poetry, no less than journalism, should stand up in the face of mortality and render significant gestures of care. This is the burden of this remarkable book, Persuasion for a Mathematician, published in 1993 you will not be to remind, need to be reminded that the 90s were a time of terrible loss for the Kingston community, beginning with the death of Roman Wallace in 1989. From this distance in space and time, it seems that Joanne's poetry follows the lead of caregivers, individuals and groups who work to deliver aid and bear witness. The heart of persuasion for a mathematician is made up of four sequences gathered in one section called A Dark Wood, after the opening of Dante's Inferno, an appropriate title, since all four grapple with mortality and loss. Besides Summer Ice, Joanne's aching memorial for Bronwyn, it includes half a correspondence calling him the dying of her friend Jan, and Fat Who Dust, Lament for a Mother. The latter was written for Sally Sharp, mother of a child's suicide, had also been Joanne's physician and support through Joanne's own struggle with cancer. With characteristic candor and bravery, Joanne addressed her own illness in her columns, as well as in her first book, The River and the Lake. The last poem in the uh, Dark Woods section is the one I want to focus on. Dialogue Zero, which is not the same as nothing. A correspondence in prose between a poet and a mathematician instigated by the shock of the same child's suicide. I want to focus on this poem partly because it is so eloquent in argument and, uh, and outcry, and partly because this presents me an opportunity, once again, to attempt to come to grips with the terrible suicide of my niece, Naomi. In Joanne's forward to the collection of Bronwyn Wallace's essays, Argument with the World, which is that she edited in 1992, she talks about the importance of ceremony that Brahman created around her own dying. Quote, she fashioned her own dying into a rich communal ceremony that sought to comfort her friends and family. To the end, she remained deeply engaged with the grief of those she loved and the pain and mystery of leaving them. These rituals developed not only in healing circles like the one Joanne describes in Summer Ice, but in the common magics of shopping for food and driving to appointments. These last rites are hands-on and bottom-up. As in Miss Birdie's Eden, they, quote, lack temple priests and all rules but one, love when you can. It seems to me that they share much with the Confucian idea of ritual, which involves weaving the human community into the fabric of the cosmos, engendering the sacred through human art, and action. But, and this is a very large but, Naomi's suicide, like so many, occurs without the solace of ceremony. In Dialogue Zero, which is not the same as nothing, Joanne presents two characters in conversation, the poet, a very thinly disguised Joanne, and the mathematician, a friend who is identified in the end notes, important as always, as Joan Garamita, here are the words of the mathematician, Joan Avers, disturbing and compelling, that required of me the best answer I could give. The two have, we understand, been in conversation by correspondence for some time. Their talk revolving around the axis between art and math. The poet, Joanne, had been recently joyful in her recovery from cancer, but is now stricken with inertia by this suicide. She has tried to help the bereaved family, but no rhythm or ceremony has occurred. I watch the aftermath of this death. Casual activity is out of the question. Yet what I do, however considered, lacks meaning. My natural urges freeze in this abyss where everyone else has been yanked into pain. No one sleeps. And then it becomes the weight of one empty day succeeding another. Each person gagged and bound the end of love. As it happens, the mathematician's brother had also committed suicide many years previous, and she has developed strong ideas, like those of some existential thinkers, about the absurd rules governing a human existence where suffering is assured. For her, suicide need not be unthinkable as it is for the poet. It may be a response to evil that, given those absurd conditions, makes sense. The serious existential thinker pursues a quest for meaning, and her or his willingness to consider suicide is an earnest of this work's importance. Quoting the mathematician, being willing to die underlies the importance of the work, allows it to continue. Suicide can be a way to say, this is really important, I'm not kidding. This stuff matters enough for me to die for it. To the poet, this is inconceivable. Hard as I try, Recalling as I do the abject terror into which cancer hurled me, I failed to find any picture of existence unbearable enough to warrant me chucking it, not even to avoid certain deaths I have witnessed and feared might one day be mine alone in uncontrolled pain. For her, as we might suspect from the Miss Birdie poems, the counter to such metaphysical angst is the joy and wonder of lived experience, summed up in the phrase green and gold. For me, reverence means paying attention to the details of living, the slivers and parings and chunks, bridges, oatmeal, intersections, the iris, whispers. I don't ruminate about what existence means or where my place in it lies because I'm busy watching. The poet's sensuous lists are infectious and crackling with energy <coughs> and bound to remind us of Miss Bertie's Eden. But they do not sway the mathematician who remains loyal to her thoughtful, well-considered pessimism, even as she envies the rumpus and tumult of <laughs> Joanne's catalogs. Paul Ricoeur, addressing the phenomenon of grief, speaks of la joie du oui dans la tristesse du fini, translated by Richard Carney as the power of yes in the wake of No. That seems close to the poet's quest. Probably we are all familiar from literature, if not from life, with the case of a grief stricken character encountering some example of beauty in the natural world. Perhaps she stands on the hospital steps and sees the mist lifting delicately with infinite gentleness from the hills. For someone like the mathematician, this might seem an instance of the absurd inaction, the callous indifference of the universe to human suffering. To the poet, it might signal the power of yes in the wake of no. In terms of the dialogue, which is going on between the two, this is the hinge between zero, which is the relational boundary between positive and negative numbers, and the nothing, which is simply nullity. That border may be thin as a fingernail, but it's a fingernail made of titanium. Dialogue Zero, which is not the same as nothing, belongs to a tradition of ontological debates provoked by the death of a child. In Camus' The Plague and Dostoevsky's The Brother Karamazov, such dramatic existential disputes are central. Camus applies the term metaphysical rebellion to the position taken by Ivan Karamazov, and the expression easily extends to his own Dr. Ryu and to Joanne Page's mathematician. Ivan declares that, quote, if the suffering of children serves to complete the sum of suffering necessary for the acquisition of truth, I affirm that from now on, that truth is not worth such a price. The mathematician, in the same vein, states that she had for a period of time become, quote, acutely aware that the suffering of the innocent is intrinsic to the smooth running of the world. Dr. Rieu, commutes Dr. Rieu, Following the harrowing death of a child expostulates, until my dying day I shall refuse to love a scheme of things in which children are put to torture. Our mathematician is not, of course, a card-carrying metaphysical rebel like Ivan Karamazov or Dr. Ryu and is confessing to spells of despair rather than initiating a philosophy. She is also not a character in fiction content, context where such absolutes are more easily contemplated. Well, Most of us aren't hardcore existentialists either, but it's likely we find a version of such existential outrage when confronted with cases like Anne Frank or Eddie Hillison, the drowned refugee boy on the Mediterranean beach, or the slaughter of innocents in the book of Matthew, or closer to home, the epidemic of suicides amongst our indigenous youth. It is testimony to the range of Joanne Page's art that she is able to accommodate a view so distant from her green and gold home key, and in such an even-handed way. It is clear that the poet and the mathematician each have an ear out for the other, that each hopes to benefit from that listening, and that neither wants to (coughs) win. Their dialogue is not a debate. It does not resolve on either side, but ends with an agreement that, as the mathematician puts it, depends on being able to see the green and gold at all. It depends, in other words, on the element of play, uncovering la joie du vivre dans la tristesse du venin. Outside the dialogue, in the wider structure of the book, Joanne Page does have an additional trick up her sleeve. She titles her last section, Green and Gold, And since it comprises another long poem, Codex on Flight, in which a character who has suffered grievous loss learns to fall in love with life again, it may be read as the poet's gift to the mathematician who is asked to be convinced of the adequacy of the poet's world, quote, awash in possibility and promise. Confronting Atrocity... We are all kinfolk of the women in line outside your blanket prison, asking the poet if she can describe this. We ask of poetry that brings language, the most intimate, most wayward, most creaturely of our instruments to witness devastating loss. We ask of poetry that it performs this paradox, that it demonstrate how words fail us by performing an act with words. These are acts of witness to you, Stan Draglands at turn and they are deeply ingrained in the aesthetic of Joanne Page. And for these literary acts of engagement, I will always be grateful. As I warned at the outset, I felt compelled to write a piece in respond to Joanne Page's eloquent grief work. She is very much the presiding sage of the piece which follows, as well as being a character in it, and I dedicate it to her. Suicide, Joanne says in the opening passage of the dialogue is a drama with a cast of characters, a series of endless reruns. Listen, she goes on, everything I see convinces me of suicide's treachery. It's mess of bystanders for every corner. We might see this drama as a sort of negative Christmas creche, the mother, the father, the brother, and the dog, surrounded by the absence of the child instead of a manger. Off to the side, amongst the bystanders, in the shadows, there is the uncle. This is his account. <laughs> the uncle's tale. The phone call comes at the early hours of the morning and gravity suddenly increases. Before the call, he was multiple and mobile bird watcher, poet, sleeper, lover editor, walker, talker, father, writer-in-residence, companion, brother. Now he is the uncle. Now everything is too heavy. The telephone, the toothbrush, the carry-on bag. Heavy, but not meaningful. The weight is the meaning. Some new physics in which load forever exceeds lift. It's a miracle the plane manages to take off. Later he will think of Jack Gilbert's image of grief as a man carrying a box that is too heavy for him, first with arms underneath, then shifting a load to this configuration or that as he stumbles on. But it's not grief that he feels, it's panic. As speed was, speed was, now that it's impossible, of the essence, as though he could reverse atrocity by arriving like a hero in the nick of time, a nick already vanishing into the past, as though we could reset the narrative, like that awful movie where Superman resurrects the dead Lois Lane by flying around and around the planet very fast and in reverse, as though we could cancel the terrible scene his brother had spoken in anguish and the telephone turned to lead. Is evil really banal? This is definitely evil. But nothing is normal anymore, let alone banal. Life does not want to be lived, it wants to be headlines. The uncle who was not there wings his way across the continent. The uncle has the temerity to consume breakfast in the, in the face of the intolerable, to visit the plane's tiny symbolic washroom, to read the in-flight magazine, to attempt to snooze. Banality, blessed banality, is elsewhere. while atrocity, Rwanda, Friblinka, Sarajevo, is at hand, just there, in the air outside the fuselage. It strikes the uncle that he may be afflicted with a small dose of his dead niece's reality, too late. It seems that for her everything was imperiled, fraught, as though she were walking a tightrope, which for everyone else was a path. She was too too vulnerable, too insufficiently versed in guile, to negotiate a family, a school, never mind adolescence, dubbing its soup of chemicals into the bloodstream. The uncle had been only a vague presence, hardly even that, now he was brazenly drinking awful Air Canada coffee while things were falling, as she had foreseen, apart. Now he was paying the price for not paying attention. Everything seemed imperiled, fraught, as though he were walking a tightrope, which for everyone else was a path. Everyone already three fifths ghost the flight attendant, the other passengers, the unseen pilot. Everyone on a day pass. Was this a version of what she had suffered? Bianca would never know. What thoughts? The uncle embraced this cliche as a stay against evil. One day at a time, one foot in front of the other. A cup of tea, of coffee, smoke, smoke, smoke. There's enough smoke in here for a dozen film noir flicks. That was a joke, see? No, it wasn't. The uncle has always enjoyed hating this town. Limestone, limestone, solidly, stolidly colonial, the military and corrections can't. The struggling for the civic soul caught in the middle. No wonder the poets were so radical, no wonder the feminists were filled with such fierce a land. That was then. Now the limestone leans towards the graveyard, people with ghosts we thought they weren't. Last week the houses were seafloor, and tomorrow they would be gravel. The uncle's role is to be steady, to be older, not exactly elder. He produces a parody of this. He does some dishes. He takes the late video back to the store. He takes the hubcaps off the car to release the gravel, which makes it sound like a continuous death rattle. He smokes. He tries to take the dog for a walk. No, the dog knows something is up. But then his brother, the father, makes a request. Of course, of course, anything. Years ago, the uncle wrote a poem about a child's hearse on exhibit in the Huron County Museum. Would he read it at the memorial service? The uncle does not have a copy with him, but his friend Joanne Page finds one in the university library. They look at it over coffee. You aren't going to really read this, are you? Joanne asks. How can I not? But obviously he can't. The poem looks sardonically at the child's hearse a scaled-down funeral carriage painted gray instead of black and equipped with childish doodads and windows. Its first line is, Child Cinderella's coach has gone gray. And it goes on to elaborate heavily on the irony of the hearse as a fairy tale plaything, ending with, and so because you're dead, you get this little treat trapped in the gray and not quite coming true. Let's say the golden key was lost, the maid forgot, the prince completely screwed it up, the end. No, no, no. This is sarcastic existential rage. This offers acid, not consolation. Maybe he could rewrite the thing overnight. The uncle remembers sitting in the cafe with Joanne and together coming to no solution, but with her burden lifted slightly, as though she had taken a corner of that box in Jack Gilbert's poem. How could they be laughing at this predicament? Maybe that's the slim silver of overlap the absurd shares with the comic. The uncle tells Joanne about the other exhibits in the Huron County Museum, which was the brainchild of J. H. Neal, who was the captain in the Salvation Army and a first-class bricoleur. About the floral clock made from a washing machine motor. The sock pullers made from old tie rods from a car. About his car. A Model A, which Mr. Uh, Neal had turned into a camper, maybe the first ever, with an awning on one side and a camp stove hooked on the other. The photos of the Model A beside the Atlantic with Mr. Neal in the water, pants rolled up to his knees, and his companion, same configuration, beside the Pacific. There was a two-headed cap. There were the spectacles equipped with little shades to protect his delicate eyes. Later, the uncle would reflect that the whole museum Would probably welcome in Miss Burry's Eden. How a catalogue of its exhibits might have comprised one of those lists with which the poet tried to persuade the mathematician. But it's the terrible child's hearse and its poem that are still on the table, and the memorial service is only 12 hours away. Yonke will be called to read a poem he has quickly come to hate, its sardonic dismissal of Victorian sentimentality, its glib, know-it-all superiority, as if he had a better idea as if a black, windowless hearse could mitigate the horror by coming closer to complete nullity. Why begrudge the Victorians a small solace of sentimentality? Things would have been different, though not necessarily, be- necessarily better, had Ivan Karamazov been the undertaker in Huron County. Late into the night, the uncle tries to dis-turn and that, trying to fix the thing. Skating on cement would be more fun. You are the brother grim, he thinks. Brother singular, grim with one M. You are not the uncle needed now. When he finally reads the poem at the service, he just cuts the last lines. Now it ends, and so, rather than the end. Not exactly la joie de la tristesse de but not unadulterated finie either. The uncle's return to daily life is not smooth. Access to its usual functions, bird watcher, poet, sleeper, lover, editor, walker, talker, father, writer in residence, brother, isn't available. He remains the failed uncle. What's the trouble? Asked the doctor. I think I've got avunculitis. Was this funny? Sort of. Just the same the doctor calls her first hepatitis and immunomucleosis. Everything a trudge. A wise man has sung that you've got to meander if you want to get to town. Sometimes, though, you have to trudge if you want to get to the bat. It was a severe winter, with enough snow that roofs buckled under the weight. Pathetic fallacy did not seem so pathetic. But eventually, inkling by inkling, spring crept like a bold-faced, but welcome cliché. The tundra swans paused in northern Alberta on their way to the Arctic, and some urges to write came too. What finally got written was nothing like an elegy and nothing like the green and gold the poet wishes for the mathematician but it marked a small surge of energy as poetry at last got down to work here it is thanks for listening suddenly at home there was no place we could sit or look there was not changed to an icon cursed with significance The closed tree groping air the last video her fish still noticing the glass the clocks, which might as well be moons, the beds mouths, and the great great grandmother staring bleakly from her portrait it is just what she might have expected Suddenly at home the cigarette replaces sentences, its red eye burning in in each phrase the blessed finch of small talk perishes what can you say? you say it will take time, we say. While well, the mills of thought churn should have, should have, and the dog holds everyone under suspicion. not clear what I said in the speech, how important it was for me to have this opportunity and to benefit from her tutelage, which I have done by reading her books. So, for joining.
0: And you just heard Don McKay's uh, October 23rd lecture in this year's uh, The Page Lectures, uh, that annual series, and uh, also closing remarks as well by Phil Hall, the series creator. And now well into it, welcome to the second hour of today's show. It's 5 Well, 5.15, almost 5.16, it looks like. You are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM, located in Lower Curtis Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6. We do stream live online, www.cfrc.ca. And because it was a wonderful lecture, I didn't want to interrupt the flow of Don McKay's lecture in the first hour uh, I held back some ads and stuff. So let's do this quickly and uh, then we'll jump ahead. I'm David Suzuki. Cut your heat and energy
1: use by 10% and you'll be making a real difference combating global warming. The future is in your hands. Shrink your footprint, grow your wallet, cool the planet. Find out how at davidsuzuki.org.
0: Did you know that your business
6: can sponsor a show on CFRC? With the widest variety of on-air programming in the city, CFRC has the right sponsorship opportunity for you. Choose from a range of music, sports, and spoken word programming to get your message across to the audience you want. To learn more about sponsoring a show of your choice, contact our sales and marketing coordinator, Mike Shepard at business at CFRC.ca.
1: i'm david suzuki the average lunch or dinner travels 2400 kilometers to get to your table eating local means combating global warming the future is on your table eat your way to a healthier planet find out how at davidsuzuki.org friday evenings at 6 p.m here on cfrc listen to saltwater music a show covering all musical genres from the east coast of canada celtic of course but also rock jazz blues folk and a lot more I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland.
0: And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Again, we are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. Here every Friday afternoon from four to six, stream as lo- uh, we stream as well on live at www.cfrc.ca. Uh, for the remainder of this second hour, uh, you're going to hear a uh, book launch and reading, uh, double book launch and reading held. At Novel Idea Bookstore on October, let me get this where I can see at eighteenth, and you'll hear readings by Heather Catsby and Sandra Davies uh, both launching their books that evening. And uh, just the usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show might contain strong language, uh, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So up first and launching uh, her latest book, uh, her latest collection of poetry called Standing in a Flock of Connections, here is Heather Cadsby. Well, it looks like we've got a full crew here, so I think we're going to go ahead and start. I'd like to thank you all for coming out uh, this evening. We're going to have two incredible poets, two wonderful books of poetry. I would also like to thank... Uh, Oscar and Joanna and this venue for being uh, literary leaders that they are in this in this city. Let's give them a hand. Yay. Up first and this is her book. Mm-hmm. Up first. Heather Cadsby is the author of five books of poetry. The most recent book is titled Standing in the Flock of Connections, uh, published by Brick, just out. In the 1980s, she and Maria Jacobs uh, founded Wolsack and Wind Publishers. Since that time, she has been involved with Phoenix, a poet's workshop, the Axel Tree Coffeehouse readings, and the Art Bar Poetry Series, among other poetry-related activities. She lives in Toronto. Let's bring her up. Let's give Heather uh, Cadsby a hand.
5: Wow.
7: (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much, Bruce Kaufman, for inviting me here. And... um, I'm going to read from the book, as he said. It's just come out, and I'm on a publisher's tour. I feel like one of those people that says, "Where was I yesterday?" And <laughs> Today's Kingston, and it's lovely, but it's um, it's just how it goes. <laughs> um, the book is consisting of five sections, and I'm going. Can you hear me, everybody? I don't, oh, no. know. I don't, yeah? Okay. I don't
5: know. Yeah. Okay. Know.
7: Know. A little more. Okay. <clears throat> My name is...
5: <laughs> your <big> voice, darling? <laughs>
7: I'm going to read a few poems from each of the sections. The book has got five sections. The first section is headed, Our Shadows Were Moving Ahead of Us. And the poem is titled, eats fish and small birds. From Van Dusen footbridge, I look down at Mimico Creek. A mink is crossing. Back and forth, east to west to east, scrambles up the bank, into one rock notch and out of another. Flies down into water again head popping in and out of sight, like a plane passing in and out of clouds. A raucous duck-caw cracks the silence, announces a family paddling upstream. Eight ducklings herded by parents, defeating the mink's darting ways. No successful dinner grab as the drake, bringing up the rear, blasts a trumpet-tongued honking squawk like no duck I've ever heard. (laughs) And from the same section, this poem is titled Gestures Simply Slip Out and On. Not, sorry. Turtles are very old, have no teeth, Not lost, never had. Not fearful of first-person singular. No turtle turmoil. A reptilian gaze is fixed on us as you adjust the focus. This is our assignment. A singular adventure (coughs) to create a life list for ourselves. Something outside ourselves. Before we do ourselves in, copulation requires an hour underwater. Ay, ay, ay. But we're off to a good start, so get your picture. We'll call this one painted and turn the page as if that's all we need to know it all. <laughs> The next section is titled, How Love Works, What Sex Means. And I'm going to read two poems from this section the first poem and the last poem. In the first poem, the protagonist is a girl of 14. She's fallen in love for the first time, and everything is just hunky dory. The poem is called In the Beginning. For his birthday, she knitted a pair of white wool socks. First time with four needles and necessary skills, ribbing the cuff, turning the heel, picking up gussets, closing the toe. Her mother, teaching it all so patient and proud She thinks he liked them, but they got into an accident. His mother shrunk them in the washing machine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the last poem, uh, they meet again purely by coincidence 50 years later, and they are both divorced and she is hopeful that they can renew that wonderful early experience they had when they got along so well when they were kids. But he has a serious mental illness. He has paranoid delusions. And it causes an enormous amount of pain for him and turmoil for her. And after a few years, it doesn't last. So this poem is about that, that period. The poem is called Going Mad... Seeing eyes. This is about everything that was taken. What he was given in return was a pack of lies, syllables of debris, an exploded view. Something crashed into his brain at the love site. Something fiery and black, a hole filled with delusions. She is running a sex service. She has to have her vagina filled six times a day. She buys men drinks, brings them home. She was on a cruise ship with a boy in the berth. She fucks my brother. Once on the phone her voice was hoarse. Proof! She lies when she denies everything. The lies are his. They are fantasies of a broken brain. Most days He sits quiet, a man in a bathrobe. He has reeled everything in. The next section is called Hitting the Golden Ratio Once in a While. And the poem is called Sunday Geometer. I guess nowadays it would be called citizen geometer. I I always loved geometry, um, not in any professional way. It was just something that appealed to me enormously. So Sunday geometer. When you're all thumbs, the Fermi rule is a comforting thing. If you can't actually count every hair on your arm, you can get solace from the master of estimation. Better to be approximately right than precisely wrong. (laughs) Hitting the golden ratio once in a while can open your eyes for tomorrow. Speculation, ongoing. Degradation, eroded. You could wait all year for the calendrical cognitive pie or say it's somebody's birthday today. (laughs) I love a pentagram. You can draw that thing all day, freehand, sloppy, five-star hotels, movies, generals. Throw it around like it was a love number, which it is. Cut an apple horizontally, there it is. Draw one inside its center pentagon and so on, nesting smaller and smaller forever, till you call it quits and start singing holy, etc. this one's called I found a window hung it on a wall it is better than a mirror because you can see to the other side I moved it to hang over my grandmother I mean the portrait of my grandmother she is three years old in the painting I never knew her to look like that. But now, with the window over her, it has become a sweet Victorian-style portrait of a rosy-cheeked style child. Beautiful. Now I don't have to get all sentimental about my family. Tomorrow, I will move the window over to cover my mother's snowshoes, which I've also hung on the wall. They were hers when she was a child. They always make me sad because the little straps for her little boots are still there and all frayed. I cry because I never knew her when she clomped through snow on these small things. But tomorrow they will be under a window a fine Edwardian artifact. Out the hospital window, I saw a dove. It was a gull. (laughs) Get up. Get going. I got up and went to see my mother. She was very old and dying. Turn left at the first hallway. I turned left and found my mother. She was dead with her mouth open. A beautiful nurse said, Here's tea. We're sorry. We've called your sister. Take your time. I'm sure she loved you. (laughs) I tried to climb in bed with her. I wanted to crush her. She was already dead. Help me. Cover her up, Heather. My sister knew my craziness. She pulled the sheet over the gaping mouth the slightly open eyes ha ha you girls missed the show I saw her pee pee the gleeful woman in the bed across the room saw removal of the catheter and bag of urine my mother loved to show off when do you stop knowing someone's looking at you um okay The next section is called Step Texts, and what I did with these was I took old familiar sayings like, um, a stitch in time saves nine, and I wanted to run around with them and kind of infuse new energy into them, and basically riff on them. So that's what the text steps are, and I'll read two of them. This one's called, Beware of Speaking of the Rich as if They Were Someone Else. In order to have your cake and eat it too, do you have to be ambidextrous, (laughs) have a conjoined twin, or hold stock in a gold mine, mine and wear a gold ring? What about crumbs? Are they considered having or eating? And you need to tread carefully if you have allergies. You could have a piece of someone's homemade from scratch, but if you actually eat it, well, you should keep in mind your last midnight trip to the ER. But manners dictate no refusals. Acceptance is the rule. So, unless you are one of those grand dames with poodles and jewels, you'd best stuff it in your purse and high-five the host. (laughs) (coughs) Beware of speaking of the sleepers as if they were someone else. If you sleep like a log... Are you stuck in a forest for a hundred years? How many Z's make up a century? All your sheep would be dead, and your hair would be beyond bed. You'd need a huge dose of nostalgia to get going again. The danger is you might actually become a log, (laughs) in which case you'd be forever destined to helping little ones with their fear of falling asleep. My advice is get up, drink warm milk, and check your messages. (laughs) The last section is uh, titled Behind My Back Someone Stole a Bunch of Words. And this is the last poem I'll read. All these things and what to do with them. A speck, a pinprick, a seed, a cup, thank you cervical collar and dark chocolate. A woman used a back scratcher and thought to write about it. The question wasn't how. The question was, why bother? To be a woman, picturing herself far away on a hill, just a dot on the landscape, no acne, no anger. She is standing in the flock of connections, nodding in agreement. To connect the dots, you first have to find them. You could start with love, if you can imagine such a lopsided thing, a biff on the head, a kick in the pants, a kiss on the lips. In a certain light you can make everything lovely. If you clear everything out there will be no squabbling. Goodbye Hummel figurine, lyre table, cobalt miniatures. Accidents don't happen in an empty room until you slip on the bare floor and slide on your path to happiness. It's a blessing, this questioning of gratitude. Now, with everything facing the sunny side, you're ready to exit. With thanks, you're welcome, everyone's welcome. Thank you.
0: That okay, was Heather Cadsby. Let's give her another hand. And you just heard Heather Cadsby reading from and launching her new book, Standing uh, Poetry, I should mention, Standing in a Flock of Connections at Novel Idea Bookstore on October 18th. Up next, and that evening as well, launching her debut collection of poetry called Gimati's Girl, here is Sandra Davies. And up next, Sandra Davies is a retired palliative care nurse and grew up in Toronto and has been writing poetry since childhood. She graduated from the University of Toronto with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing and for the next 40 years, practiced nursing in Toronto, India, and Kingston, her home since 1989. Since retiring, she has participated in creative writing workshops and had poems appear in literary magazines and anthologies. Uh, Gio Gio Cometti's Girl, Cormorant Books, is her first book. She has two adult uh, sons and four beloved grandchildren. Oh, I didn't have to do that. They're right here. (laughs) Let's bring up Sandra Davies.
6: Wow, (laughs) Wow, Sandra. This is amazing. (laughs) Maureen, hi, 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 I did see you guys. Anyway, I guess I better read, eh? Um, my editor, Robin Sarah, who is right there, at the last moment changed the order of my reading.
5: <laughs>
6: well, I might, put, <laughs> I might put this one first. Okay. (laughs) So, thank you, actually. It reads better. I'm going to read just a few poems. This is called Giacometti's Girl.
7: A little louder. Okay. Even I can't hear
6: you. Oh, boy. Try a little louder. Giacometti's Girl. Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) Facing squarely front, head erect, hands folded, a young woman sits very still staring out into the world. I got her at the Tate a lifetime ago, or perhaps she got me, reached out with her sober gaze and looked me in the eye. So compelling this Giacometti study, one of a series of this girl. She is waiting, waiting to meet the one waiting to open, to lie down, waiting for him to come home, for the baby to quicken, for birth, growth, laughing, loving, leaving, and for everything else along the way, betrayal, loss, the hungry waves of the sea. Even then in that gallery when I was young, I must have understood how we women sit braced, contained, hearts willed to steady, waiting with guarded eyes for God's other shoe. Um is there a bottle of water or a glass of water I'll or something. something? Thank you, I'm dry with nervous tension. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. My month is dry. (coughs) (coughs) My former and late mother-in-law was born in Holland um, in Friesland, which is the north of Holland. And she and her husband were very active in the underground in the Second World War. They He was head of a whole unit so they were responsible for a lot of people Um, they never spoke of it very often when they were in canada but it was always with them (coughs) so the few bits and pieces of information that i got from her um, i've put into a prose poem it's called beppa speaks beppa means grandma in frisian I waited always for the knock. We women had to answer, and we slept with pistols under our pillows. Rifles were hard to get, and were carried only by the men. Motherhood came second, you see. Our babies weaned on boiled turnip, left with tantas who filled them up with more turnip, omkas who carved them toys from turnip. Our men were fighters, but we were only couriers and had to be the first to sacrifice. We could not question my husband Hendrik, who was commandant of our group. Once we had to get the hidden Jewish kindred off the houseboat where we lived, move them to a safer place, and Hendrik hid them under blankets in the truck. He had to shoot the German officer who tried to stop them, but he never told me this until we came to Canada. To tell you true, I think he thought that Jesus wouldn't save him from hell if he knew he had killed a man, so often you remember he prayed the Onze Vater. Another time there was a drop, you know, a, a, a drop, an army plane, food, supplies, guns, soldiers. We all ran to the airfield with the flares, and there was silence on the ground and silence from the soldiers. No stars or moon is why they chose that night. That silence, flares and parachutes, the smell of fear, and I thought about my baby, my empty breasts. Running fast and low, we carried everything, soldiers, guns, food, ghosts. They came so silently, those German gunboats. How they slipped unseen into the canal to hunt us down, we did not know. We ran the motor, stole away. We lived. I see me now, a girl of 20, riding on my bicycle, carrying documents, carrying a pistol for Christian, for my baby boy that he should live in peace. <coughs> this is a poem I wrote a long time ago. And I really like it. <laughs> it's called House Wren. A flick of the tiny, up-tilted head before she hollers her best goodnight into the evening sky. From high above, under the curve of the world's ceiling, I must seem as insignificant to her as she is minuscule to me. She doesn't give me a glance, this rackety bird, unobtrusive in her smooth, dun color, its underlay of peach when the light is right. Compact, no bigger than a deer mouse, with a voice persistent and scrappy as a terrier's. She shows up every May, Occupies the Wren House. Sweet, brave, hilarious. Closer to my heart than I have understood. Hatches babies, scolds, protects. Then exits. One morning, just before dawn, I catch her poking around the deck. Quiet. Oblivious. Sometimes, in a piece by Mozart... You can hear a perfectly measured, exquisite run of slow, true notes. They come to me from time to time like prayer, like heartbreak, like a tough little wren on a deck in the woods by herself.
5: Okay.
6: And find the page. I had a request for this from you. <coughs> Molly and her men. widowed, come together late. They are partners. Their kids grateful to miss the burden of their old age for a while. Friendly, chatty, but careful. "'wary of past errors, lacerating wars, tender scars. "'Their bodies fit together, if not often, "'nicely enough to keep them in the same big bed, "'affectionate and easy. "'But Molly wishes for a little more romance, "'a small display of feeling, just a smidge, she thinks. "'Then, slowly, as the coming of spring... She senses a tiniest unfurling. Here's her name, a light caress. You say my name, she says. It's nice. You name me more. He looks at her, surprised. Ah, Maul, he says. I love you more. okay this one is called leaf i've been thinking on aging lately
5: mm-hmm.
6: just a minute i can't even <laughs> move my
2: mouth
3: <laughs> leaf
6: black branch against sky oak "'Stubborn leaves always last to depart, "'unwilling to shrivel and fall. "'She watches the new day rise with the sun, "'has been up for hours with the pain in her hip, "'floating, avoiding deep thinking, "'this gray-haired girl kidnapped by time. "'She forgets if she took her pills, "'fed the cats, really lost her slippers, "'walks invisible on the streets,' loses herself in the wash of indifference, loses her balance, loses her nerve. She calms the clunk of her double-crossed heart for fear of the big attack. Nightmares of nursing home, walkers and wheelchairs, caregivers calling her honey. She thinks of her mother, weeps with the shame of not having understood. She misses the grandkids, pining to hold them. Knowing, as everyone says, they have lives of their own. As she has had hers. And damn it, still does. (laughs) Uh, Autumn with birds, 70. That's what comes of having your... Order changed around just before reading. I'm <laughs> uh, not going to
5: have to turn any more pages. That's right. You're <laughs> facing <pages. laughs>
6: um, Yes, Autumn with Birds. A quiet day on the lake except for the sound of someone chopping wood. Leaves are down or ready to fall, waiting for signals. Wisps of sadness hover. The sky is that rare shade of blue you can feel in your chest no clouds, a crisp chill niggles, get out the sweaters and boots, pull up the boats, take the air conditioner out of the bedroom window. Up here late autumn begets a certain blindness to beauty, folks with heads down going about their chores, putting stripped gardens to bed, canning and freezing, tending steaming kettles, rituals learned in childhood, Suddenly a swirling cloud darkens the sky, filling the air with a jungle of bird call. They always arrive in a burst raucously. Thousands of blackbirds perch on the old-growth maples and oaks, pouring their music down, enveloping us in resounding chatter. They set the trees to a furious flutter, then rise as one, ribboning the sky, opening our faces hidden places. One more. You no,
7: didn't have to do that. It was facing page.
6: Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, I was going by my order. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Here we are. Okay, you're quite right.
5: <laughs>
6: oh, blush. Um, this is called like water. When they are seventeen, he takes her to a place where the shield surrounds and Kelly's creek pinches to a rivulet, tadpoles flashing through sunken moss, sunshine winking on puddles like an eyelid when the light is too brilliant to face. They lie together in the shallows, these childhood friends, unschooled in passion, drawn in by the shimmer of tiny minnows and the ripe scent of slow, slippery pools. Sweet, easy kisses, hesitant touchings, then a melting so warm, so new, their laughter wells up in astonishment. A 50-year-old memory rising from beneath a guarded heart, unseemly in its longing, as vibrant as if yesterday, me so young and careless, shaking love out of my hair like water. That's it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
5: This is my editor, she believes it.
0: <laughs> that was Senator Davies, let's give her another hand. And how about one more for both poets, Heather and Samuel? And one more time for Oscar and Joanna and Neil's happiness out tonight. Well, the, oh no, don't worry about that one. <laughs> There's plenty of food and drink, and there are books up here, and I'm sure the authors would love to chat with you. So please, I thank you all again for coming out tonight. Thanks. Papers. And you just heard Sandra Davies reading from and launching her debut collection of poetry called Giacometti's Girl. Uh might have just a minute or two to share a few upcoming events, and I didn't even bring the list with me, so I'm going to talk briefly about the two that are. Coming up this Sunday. But before I do that, uh, I do want to thank you for tuning in today. And uh, you have been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queens University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. Do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. Just want to remind you that both hours of today's show will be uploaded each week to my blog space for it shortly after it airs at finding a voice on cfrc.wordpress.com and will remain there for four years. Do hope too you can stay tuned for Saltwater Music coming up uh, right at the top of the hour. Two hours of East Coast music uh, in a show called again Saltwater Music, hosted by Rob Carnell. And again, thank you for tuning in today. Just want to briefly mention I didn't I didn't bring the list with me, thinking I wouldn't have any time at all to do this uh there I I'll, I'll plug uh, my own gig I guess cuz I know about that one there is uh I'm going to be doing an intuitive writing workshop to our workshop uh on uh, Sunday uh afternoon from 1 to 3 at the Duck, and it's going to be on the second floor and it's the Maclaughlin room uh so uh, if you can make it out it's uh free Uh, for Queen students. It's just pay what you can for community members. Uh, There is a Facebook event page for it, so uh, just uh, go to Creative Writing Club uh, or Queens Creative Writing Club. Go to their page, and the event's on there. They're also requesting an RSVP. Also that evening at the Spire, there's going to be a dramatic reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I've been two years. It's an incredible performance. Hope you can make it out there. And that starts at 7 p.m. on Sunday evening. So, again, thank you for tuning in today, and do please... Stay tuned for two hours of East Coast music coming up right after this. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information, or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.